Hi, how you doing? Welcome to my podcast, A Design for Life. How to survive and thrive at life. My name's Phil Mears, entrepreneur, mindset coach, and I want to share with you my life lessons and how I learned to survive some unbelievable life traumas. But also, from that, I designed a successful life for myself. I'll also share with you my harrowing backstory and how I can help you with not just the big life-affirming challenges and changes you want to make to your life, but also the little everyday challenges when you're feeling a little bit disorientated and you maybe need a little bit of a boost to get you going again. This podcast is where you'll discover my secrets of how to apply a positive mindset to uplift your life when you're feeling a bit stuck, maybe don't know which way to turn. And you will be able to thrive in ways you've never before imagined and perhaps start living the best life you can. I'm excited to have you with me here. Hi guys, and welcome to episode two of my podcast. I'm absolutely delighted that you took the time to be with me. And in this week's episode, we're going to cover the subject of relationships, which, whilst being an integral part of our life, are a very complex area of our life. And if we're going to move from any kind of survival phase to a thriving phase, we need to do a little bit of a check-in as far as the relationships that are surrounding us, because these are critical to our mental and physical well-being. So I'm going to do a little bit of a deep dive into my backstory, and I'm going to share with you some examples of where I had struggles with relationships, but also where I managed to recognise the value of the nourishing and the positive relationships and also knowing the difference because some of you will struggle to know the difference between the relationship that is nourishing you and the one that is draining you. You may convince yourself that the one that isn't good for you actually serves you simply because of a fear of breaking away from it but sometimes that's what we have to do and I'll explain to you in my examples of how I managed to do that, what I did, how I did, but also what the benefits of actually doing it were. So when we look at our close relationships, for example, with our parents, parents, siblings, partners, uh, friends and work colleagues, as I said, these relationships form a lot of the decisions we make about our lives they influence these decisions in so many ways, but they are critical, as I said before, to how we feel about ourselves and about our wellness. And you only have to look at the example recently of when we all went into lockdown and we were deprived of a lot of these relationships that serve as well. And we craved that interaction that we were missing, be it from friends, family members or work colleagues, but also what about the um, harmful relationships that we were locked in with and we were unable to escape them? And in our lives, we, we will both have positive and supportive relationships that nourish us, nurture us and sustain us, but also negative uh, relationships that are unsupportive and leave us empty, exhausted and can be harmful. And the lesson here is, first of all, we need to recognise the difference. And secondly, we need to recognise what we need to do about it. And as adults, we are afforded these choices. We can make these choices about the kind of relationships that impact on our lives, no matter who they are and 
uh, how difficult those relationships are. So I'm going to use um, an example of where I had to make choices about continuing the relationship or not. And if not, how to go about it. So I'm going to start really with my father as an example and my relationship with him and how it came to a head where I had to make a decision about what to do about it. So back when I was doing my commando training, I was approaching the halfway point of my training, which is 15 weeks. And at that point, there is a pass out parade where you transfer from one section of the training to another. And this is where your family come down and watch us march around a little bit and pat us on the back and tell us how well we're doing and how proud of us they are. Now, back home, there was a lot of trouble between my parents who had long since been divorced, but and lived quite a distance apart. But nevertheless, it didn't stop the animosity between them. And it was getting quite bad and coming to a bit of a head, if you like. So I didn't want them both coming down to my pass out and kicking off in front of the military top brass, my colleagues and my training team. So in the interests of peace and harmony, I invited my mother and my brother and had a word with my father and I said, look, you've got to understand that I don't want what's happening between you two transferring down to where I am now. And as, as a result, I'd be grateful if you stayed away. Well, being a sort of bitter, jealous, twisted and uh, altogether violent and unpleasant kind of person, uh, my father, also with a very fragile ego, he didn't respond very well to this. And he told me so on the phone. But he followed it up several days later with a letter telling me exactly what he thought of me. How I was very selfish, I wouldn't amount to anything despite my career choice, how I was no longer his son and lots of other expletives that um, I won't bother uh, mentioning. But in with the letter, he'd also returned a photograph that I'd sent to him, which we'd all had done earlier in our training, stood on the parade ground with our uniform, and he sent copies of these to various family members. And he'd returned this picture and written across it, Rot in Hell. So you get a kind of flavour of the kind of person that my father was. But he, this wasn't the only example of when he'd done this. He loved to pick times when you were at your lowest point. And he didn't know it, but at that point in my training, I just returned from a four-day survival exercise. So I was physically exhausted, but also my morale was pretty low. And often when you get post from back home, it's one thing that lifts your spirits. But obviously I received this letter at the worst time possible and it had the adverse effect. But as I say, this wasn't the last time he was ever going to do this. Because if we fast forward to when I was in my rehabilitation in hospital after my motorcycle accident, I'd been laying flat on my back for quite some time, but my rehabilitation was going quite well. I was moving forward with therapy, with uh, exercise and the discipline and no-nonsense approach that the hospital had for uh, rehabilitation suited me perfectly because it replicated or mirrored, if you like, the military training that I'd been used to. And you had no choice but to get up and go to the gym, to go to therapy, to learn how to um, uh, look after yourself. So it was all moving along nicely and I was progressing to what I believe was going to be a more positive, um, a more fulfilling and potentially rewarding life that was going to be a lot different to how I'd set out to, to plan it that way. But nevertheless, it was optimistic and it was positive, moving in the right direction.
And then one day I received a visit from a friend of mine who'd been a boyfriend of my mother's, but I'd gone on very well with this guy, Eric. And he came to see me in hospital and he was a lovely, kind, sweet gentleman with a fantastic sense of humour. So we got on very well. In fact, it was one of those relationships. And I hope that you have one of these in your life. If you, if you do, you're very blessed. But it was one of those relationships where you might not see each other from one month to the next. But when you do catch up, it's like you only saw each other yesterday. And between Eric and I, it was very much like that. So I was very blessed. And when he came to see me, I was absolutely delighted. So we're getting on very well. He's sitting there next to my bed and we're having a chat and we're having a laugh. And in walks my father, quite unexpectedly, because to my mind, I couldn't remember him ever visiting me. But he did. And he saw Eric sat next to my bed and I introduced him and told uh, introduced them to each other. And I told my father who he was. And he didn't like it. His his fragile ego somehow felt dented. And you could see the tension rising um, in my father. And he'd he'd been he, he was a very violent man anyway during my upbringing. And I could sense something was going to kick off and I was quite fearful of what it might be. And he started uh, shouting uh, abuse at Eric, at me... And it was all totally irrational and totally unnecessary. But he kicked off and uh, eventually he left. Not before telling me in front of everybody on the ward exactly what he thought of me. Which was similar to what he'd written in the letter to me years previously. However, after he'd gone, you kind of think, well, thank God that's over. But several days later, true to form, I received a letter which was very much in the same vein as the one I'd received when I was uh, training. Um, And uh, yes, he was basically saying how selfish I was, how I didn't consider his feelings, uh, having relationships, friendships, if you like, with uh, my mother's ex-boyfriends. And oh, honestly, it was it was it was pathetic really but the language and the tone of the letter was very much as I'd experienced prior to that but his punchline was that as far as he was concerned I was dead to him and if there was any justice as a result of my accident I'd be dead myself soon so he kind of topped the previous one which you know you didn't I didn't think was possible but nevertheless he'd done that so at this point in my rehabilitation I'd got to make some decisions about whether to continue with this relationship, but I'd got so much going on at the time, I really had to sideline it before I made any firm decisions about how to deal with it. And thankfully, for the rest of my rehabilitation, I didn't see or hear from him. And you might be forgiven that that was the worst thing that could happen to you as far as parents' interference and disruptions concerned. But I'm going to come to my mother now. And... My mother, again, um, you know, they say it takes two to tango and the relationship between my parents um, was very much of the antithesis of a tango. They would fall out. It was very violent. um, It was chaotic and uh, they gave as good as they got, really, which is not the sort of experience you want when you're growing up. And they were very volatile and very unpredictive and never felt safe in the in their company, really, as a child. So. It gives you an idea that uh, these were two people who should never have been parents, to be quite honest. So 
Later on in my rehabilitation, I was coming towards the end of it and feeling like I was ready to be discharged from hospital. I'd wanted to go and live my life away from the hospital, but also I was ready to start living independently and ready for the challenge that that, uh, that, that presented. So I'd up until now, there'd been my mother lived in a council house in Buxton, which is where we'd moved to, uh, let me see, five, six years prior to. Uh, my accident and um, basically what the council were aiming to do was to make some serious alterations to the property to make it accessible and suitable for myself so they were going to do this huge extension on the side of the house which involved an ensuite bathroom and a, a, a really an annex for me but they were also going to install a new kitchen, a new lounge, some patio doors, a patio, re-landscape the front and the back of the house. So it was quite a significant alteration to the house. And my mother was was totally excited about this. She, as far as she was concerned, she was getting the house that she wanted and she deserved. So all was going well. But what had happened is whilst I was in hospital, I'd made the decision that that's not how I wanted to live. I wanted to live independently. I wanted to have a place of my own because that was the only way I was going to move from my survival phase to my thriving phase. I needed to get away and to start living independently to find out just how strong I was. I believed that I had this kind of strength but uh, to survive and thrive, but I needed to put it to the test. Um, and living under the umbrella and uh, of my mother's house that was never going to happen so we fast forward to the point really where I'm going to discharge myself from hospital because I'd consulted with my doctors and so forth and they thought I wasn't ready particularly because the house that my mother was currently in was far from suitable for a wheelchair user so naturally they had concerns but I assured them that it was the right thing for me and that's what I wanted and so I was discharged from hospital and I went home and that weekend I decided to tell my mother what my plans were. Now, think of it this way. What you would expect, the response you would expect is, OK then, son, well, let's start looking for a place for you. And in the meantime, we'll get on with making the best of what we have here. That's what you'd expect. And I dare say, um, most of you are thinking exactly that. But what actually happened was completely different to that. So my mother, if we think about how my father reacted to the news that uh, I gave him um, and what happened in those scenarios, well, apply that to this scenario. My mother didn't take well to the idea, basically, that she wasn't going to get this rehashed, this refurbished, renovated uh, new house. Because if I wasn't living there, there was no need to do any of that. So she reacted very badly with it and launched into uh, a quite an abusive rant at me telling me similar sorts of things that I'm selfish and that how could I not consider the uh, her needs her requirements and what she deserved for being so supportive of my situation um, and that basically if I wasn't going to uh, stay in her house long term well I might as well get out now and she meant it that I was to leave the house. I'd only just been discharged from hospital. I had nowhere to live, nowhere to go. And despite all of that, it, uh, this is Buxton in Derbyshire, and this was February. So 
that if you know anything about Buxton, um, you may know that um, it's in the middle of the Peak District, and this is a town that gets cut off um, quite often during the, the winter because of the extreme weather conditions. So outside of the front door, there was three foot of snow. Now, I couldn't get outside the front door anyway, but with three foot of snow out there, it wasn't going to happen. That didn't bother my mother. I had to leave her house right now. Um, and she was shouting and screaming, and it was pretty awful. Now, witnessing this was my then-girlfriend, Jane, who was, in fact, the same Jane that I uh, was due to have my first date with on the day I had my accident. So she had stuck around. And what she did was, she was very supportive. She rang um, her auntie and asked if I could go to her house, because it was the only family member she knew of that whose house I could access. So... Basically, I left the house, went to stay with Jane's auntie for a few weeks and with her and her family's support, eventually found a bedsit for me to live. And whilst the bedsit wasn't suitable for a wheelchair user, it was at least accessible. And this was my first place of my own. And one thing that I noticed when I shut the door of my bedsit it was calm, it was peaceful, and above all, it was safe. Because I recognised a couple of things that, first of all, life with my parents had never felt safe. I never knew what was going to happen from one day to the next, because they were so volatile and so unpredictable. But also, even when they weren't arguing, in the background was always this tension that something could explode at any minute. So when I moved into my bedsit and closed the door, I realised that there was this absence of this tension. It no longer existed in my life. And the feeling of sheer relief of not having that anymore was a revelation to me, a tremendous revelation. And I suddenly started to think that my life could be very different if I chose it. But what I had to do was to actually get away from my parents. I needed to extricate myself from that relationship. But could I? Did I have what it took to um, to do just that? Because when you knowing that you have to do it and doing it are two different things. That's when fear sets in, self-doubt sets in of what the consequences might be of doing it. Well, one of the things that I recognised from this is that once I'd got my own place and I'd got this calmness and this safety of, in my life, I started to take a little bit of stock about who I was. And one of the things I recognised about myself was that I was strong and that I was a survivor and that you could knock me down, but I would get back up again. And with that kind of confidence and that sort of self-recognition, I thought, I can do something about it. And I started the process of pulling away from my parents. But it didn't work the first time. I had a few false starts. Even though it was liberating, there were a few false starts because there'd be a gap, an absence of them in my life, and everything would be okay. And then you'd get a bit of a contact one of them would get in touch and say, how are you? Is everything okay? Um, do you need anything? And you start to think, well, maybe we've learned some lessons from that. 
maybe we've all moved on and maybe we can reconnect and uh, make things a little bit better than they were before. But the reality is it doesn't. It works for a while and then something happens and boom, it all blows up again. And that's what happened. A few false starts and you have this belief that it's going to happen and that it's going to be better and it never is. So there had to come, something had to happen that was going to make me make the final decision. And it happened. And it's when I had children of my own. Because I thought there is no way on this earth that I am going to allow my children to share any of the experience I'd had with my parents. And that was the catalyst, the kick in the backside that I needed to get away from my parents. And that's exactly what I did. And that's where I am to this day. It's very liberating once you've actually made that decision and you've taken that action and you've got that toxic person out of your life you can then start to live your life the way you want to and it's something that's completely essential but there i recognize that it is difficult you don't get it right the first time but you have to stick with it and when you've got sufficient motivation as i had with the with being a parent and having children of my own and not wanting for them what I'd experienced myself I had now found the motivation to do what needed to be done and to break away from those relationships so what about you what about the relationships that you have are there relationships there that you are struggling with and struggling to let go these could be with uh, partners parents siblings or even friends, and that's a, a, a topic there that in its own right. Friendships are very complex and they don't always show up for us the way we want them to. We continue with friendships sometimes long after we've recognised that they're not serving us anymore. I certainly learnt the hard way with uh, friendships because for many years throughout my school years I did actually struggle with this I went to 13 different schools because my parents had this toxic chaotic violent relationship between them and we would often find sometimes in the middle of the night totally unexpectedly we would be uprooted and moved on to another location to ex uh, escape this my mother would get up take us away and we'd end up somewhere completely different and having to start all over again. Um, so because this happened, like I say, I went to 13 different schools. So I was always the new boy. But being a shy, introverted sort, I got bullied quite often. And this was, this, this was happening at school time after time after time. And on this one particular occasion, I was in my first year at high school. So I'd be about 12 years old. And I really was struggling because friendships when you're that age are really, really important to you in a way that they hadn't been previously. So I find myself um, with no friends and on my all alone at school, a bit scared, being bullied and quite lonely and obviously quite vulnerable. But eventually I was befriended by this boy who you could see he wasn't the right sort of person to have a relationship but when you're devoid of any other interaction any other friendships you cling to whatever is available so this boy made friends with me um 
And I thought, well, in the absence of anything else, this will do. But of course, that's always the wrong choice. What I didn't realise at the time is he'd spotted my vulnerability and was manipulating me. And long story short, I ended up being um, arrested for shoplifting and into it was very quickly going down a path of criminal ways. And he eventually he would uh, physically attack me on a regular basis. So I had to get away from that relationship and that friendship, which I did. And it taught me a lesson that sometimes being on your uh, on your own is far better, even if you are feeling lonely, than being in the wrong relationship with someone like that, who is not serving you and is taking advantage of you and is exploiting your vulnerability. Um, but eventually I did make relationships at school and I had a couple of close friends because I started to show up as myself. I didn't want to, um, I, I, I didn't want to be friends with the wrong sort of person. I was quite happy in my own company then and resigned to the idea that I would be alone if that's what it took. And what happens is when you're in that position, people will be attracted to you. Now, these people won't necessarily be the cool kids, the ones that you want to be friends with, and they will come from the most unexpected sources. But what is most important is that you end up having something more valuable. You have a genuine relationship that serves both of you. And that is crucial, really, in terms of how it nourishes your life, recognizing when a relationship is good for you and when it isn't. And so I learned this at the age of 12 years old, but it's uh, it stood me in good stead since variations of that have shown up and I've been able to recognize that and make a decision. And that's the important thing. At 12 years old, I was just at the point where I was starting to be able to make decisions for myself about who I was going to spend time with. And as an adult, that's exactly what we have. We have the choices about who we want to spend time with. And taking stock of our relationships is an essential part, as I started this episode with saying. We have to take stock of those relationships around us and how they serve us or don't before we can move forward with our life from one phase to the next. And in my life as a mindset coach, when we're talking about this particular issue with clients, I encourage them to begin with some honest self-talk and face the uncomfortable truths. Start with the relationships that you know at the back of your mind are not serving you the way they should and break them down into just what it is that you're getting and just what it is that you're not getting and what you feel you deserve and what you need. And be honest with yourself, honest self-talk. And you may convince yourself that uh, this is the relationship you want because, well, they love me. This person loves me. And I'm afraid love isn't enough. It's just not enough. What you need from any relationship is trust, respect, kindness and the freedom to be you. And if you're not getting that, then it's going to cause you anxiety, depression and fear. So love is not the be all and end all. 
you, you you can be in a toxic relationship and you can convince yourself that it's love because every time something happens, well, they always go out of their way to show me just how they feel about me. And they apologize, they make it up to me, they shower me with affection or care or all the other bullshit that goes with it. And it's dressed up as love. But it's not. If you've not got trust, respect, kindness and freedom to be yourself, then it ain't a relationship that su- uh, that serves you. And it doesn't matter whether this is a parent, a partner, a sibling or a friend. If you're not getting what you need from that relationship, then you have to get away from it. But similarly, if you are getting that and you're getting all those things you want from that relationship, then you need to nurture that relationship. You need to reciprocate those feelings and make sure that that person, be it a parent, a friend, a sibling, or a partner, you need to make sure that they feel trusted, respected, and they've received kindness, and that they have the freedom to be themselves. And give gratitude and thanks and show them that you mean that. Because those are the relationships that are going to serve you moving forward in your life. Now, I always advocate action. And it's okay to sit and do the theory and listen to me and say, do you know what, Phil? Yeah, I think I'll do that. I need to do that. I need to do something about it. Um, And I'm going to give it some serious thought. Well, yeah, by all means, do that. But don't just sack it off then and say, well, I've I've done my thought. I really need to start thinking about when I'm going to do it. Think, 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 think. Sod that. Do your thinking, but don't overthink it and take the action. Move forward. Do something about these relationships and do it today. Do something today that moves you forward in the direction you know you need to go in because that's the only way that you are going to uh, make these changes that you have to do. Now, as I say, there are no excuses. This is a phrase that you're going to hear me use quite a lot. There are no excuses because at the end of the day, if a regular guy in a wheelchair like me can do this, then there's no reason that I can see that you can't accept yourself if you're just getting in your own way. So stop doing it. Take my example from a guy with certain limitations and make some changes and take that action. So that's your homework before we speak again, to do something about it and make these changes. And you will. You're starting to design your own life and you are going to start to move from your survival phase to thriving phase. And I hope that you do something about it. Drop me some notes, some comments and let me know how you're getting on. But in the meantime, take care of yourself and stay safe. Thanks for listening to my podcast, guys. I really appreciate your company and I hope you got something from this episode that can help you with your life. If you did, then click subscribe because I've got so much more to share with you and I don't want you to miss a thing. Also, why not bring your friends on the journey and share this podcast with them? You can post feedback in the comments section. I'd love to hear what you've got to say. Or you can get in touch with me direct by visiting my website at designforlifecoaching.com, especially if you're struggling at the moment and you need a lift. In the meantime, stay safe, guys, and I look forward to catching up with you soon.